with tiger this is a quarantine episode due to coronavirus so um actually starting now every episode is going to come out every four days half as often i feel really bad about it but um it's really hard to get guests now that everyone's social distancing so here's an example of one of the shows that i did online this guest is down in stanford down in the bay area of california he is i'm gonna let him introduce himself he's a phenomenal human being i'm looking forward to doing an in-person show with him once corona's gone and I think you'll enjoy it. So if you enjoy the show, subscribe, share with friends, lots of love, and here's the show. All right, and I'm live with Andres Gomez Emelson. That's right. How are you doing? Uh, do you want to give a minute and introduce yourself? Hi, yes, uh, I'm doing pretty well. Um, and uh, yeah, I mean, uh, I'm part of the this research group that's called the Qualia Research Institute. I'm one of the co-founders of it. And basically, we do kind of a... Um, three core things. Uh, we, on the one hand, try, try to like map out the state space of consciousness, kind of like really understanding what is the scope of all possible experiences. Then we also try to identify the computational properties of consciousness, uh, which really connects like very deeply to like why we're conscious to begin with. Why would natural selection bother to create us conscious creatures to you know, control uh, <laughs> the sort of like animals that we are? Uh, and then, like the third one, which has been pretty much our, our objective, um, our focus recently, is reverse engineering valence, which is the the pleasure pain axis. Um, they also call it a uh, affect in uh, uh, psychology. Uh, I like it. But I think, like, uh, yeah, like valence is a is a pretty good term because it doesn't have like the the typical associations of just saying something like. Oh, we're trying to understand pleasure, <laughs> which people might kind of uh, intuitively assume it's kind of like trying to understand something like shallow, as opposed to let's say the very deep moments of meaning that people can can experience and are very very important in their life. Um, valence also captures kind of this this sense of uh, significance okay. in, in very meaningful moments. I like it. And so, uh, did your time? So you got a master's degree at Stanford in uh, computational psychology, I believe, or something. Yeah, along those yeah, lines? that's right. Um, and so is this just kind of a progression of the, the work you were doing during that master's degree? And you actually started up or co-started up, uh, restarted the transhumanist project there? Yeah. So at Stanford, I co-founded the Stanford Transhumanist Association. Um, that was a yeah, pretty, pretty good experience. Uh, that was like in yeah, 2010, uh, which is really kind of like when a lot of like really cool things were kind of uh, popping up in, in, in the Bay Area and, and elsewhere when it comes to kind of, a, you know, the, the rationalist community, effective altruism and, and transhumanism more, more broadly. So I'm uh, pretty happy that in, in some sense got kind of a front row seat to like all of those kind of like cultural happenings. Yeah, um, that's awesome, man. Um, so I actually do. Those are the three core things that I wanted to kind of dive into. I love all three of those subjects as someone who um, uses psychedelics like DMT often and also things like Kratom, like partial opiate agonists. Um, I love consciousness. It's a wonderful thing to think of. My first question to you is, um, I'm actually going to preface it with a quote from an author on his deathbed. He says, my whole life, I've always known that everybody dies, but I've always had a sneaking suspicion that an exception would be made in my case. And uh, do you have a sneaking suspicion on what happens to your consciousness if and when you die? Or do you think you won't as a part of your transhumanist um, 
work or, you know, where do you sit on that spectrum? <laughs> That's a great, a great question. Um, well, I guess when it comes to like mortality, I, I would say I am a little bit, uh, not the most optimistic in, in, in that sense. I, I, I do think very likely I am going to die. Um, I, I think like for people who are alive today, it might be a little bit too late. Uh, I do think in principle, uh, actually, you can have indefinite lifespans. Or you mean too and early? Of course, like we're born too early, alive too early. Too late? Yeah, exactly. We're born too early. Um, if we had been born 50 years from now, I think we, we would have a good chance. <laughs> but, I mean, um, I mean, there's kind of this, this, this sense of like, I think, I think it's reasonable to advocate for opt-out cryonics, that if it's done on a sufficiently large scale, it actually becomes, you know, trivially cheap to, you know, do a kind of like nationwide program for, for cryonics. And the other kind of part of the equation is really thinking of it in terms of a, uh, this term that it's uh, called cryostasia, which is you, you may not actually want to wait until you are, uh, you know, like 91 years old and, and your memory has like largely faded away and, and your personality is also practically gone um, before, you know, you decide to do cryo, uh, cryonics. Like it's, it's better in a sense to do it when you're like about to decline, to actually have like some kind of like chance at reviving with any quality of life or like at least like with any kind of sense of personal continuity. Um, and uh, yeah, I guess like that's sort of like what I would be advocating and I'll probably consider it in my case when I'm, you know, going 70. strong on like so you're, 70. You're 70 and you'd opt in to be Fry from Futurama where they just freeze you for a couple thousand years? Yeah, yeah, oh, potentially. interesting. I like it. Um, and so do you think your consciousness would stay at all in you or like uh, around during that time? Or like, or do you think it'd just be slowed to a certain level or, you know, what, what would happen while you're not there, but then eventually you do come back? Well, that touches on an extremely deep topic, which is uh, philosophy of personal identity. And I do have like several views on that. And I would say that, you know, if, if the reviving process is successful, I, I think like I, w- I would wake up and in some sense it would be me in a pretty, pretty deep way. Um, but I think like the, the, the issue actually, it's even deeper in that if you kind of like take very seriously the question of like, okay, what, what are the necessary and sufficient conditions for me to continue to exist from one moment to the next, you kind of like end up going through this rabbit hole where you first postulate that, well, memory, maybe, maybe memory is the one criteria that, you know, determines who we are as like, you know, John Locke would, would postulate. Um, but then that, that has all kinds of counterexamples where maybe you can have like memory loss and memory is imperfect. And uh, sometimes we we edit our memories, and you know it's sometimes I wouldn't say, all the time. <laughs> yeah, all the time, all the time. Or we have like complete fabrications of memories, like when you're dreaming, and then you think you know you were a dinosaur like an hour ago, and it's. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so memory may actually not be the carrier of identity, and you you kind of kind of continue to look at all of the things that could be the carriers of identity. I would argue that most of them, if not all, uh, become implausible after just a little bit of investigating them. And what I have concluded is that 
the only thing that can actually, in a sense, be the identity carrier is awareness itself, like basically just the mere fact of consciousness. In which case, in a sense, this arrives at the possibility of um, uh, open individualism, that in a sense, we, we're all one consciousness, like we're all the mere fact of awareness. In which case, you know, whether they revive you or not, um, it doesn't actually make much of a difference when it comes to personal survival because you will continue to exist in every living creature no matter what. <laughs> um, that said, I, I do think there's like good sociological reasons why it would be actually positive to have like cryostasia as kind of like an opt-out system. Uh, a lot of it has to do with um, basically people making decisions that will benefit the world in the long term because they would have a... Um, uh, skin in the game, so to speak. They, they actually have like a reason to look forward to what the world is going to be 200 years from now. I think that would be totally. a positive thing. That's a good way of putting it. It's funny that you say um, we're all collective one experience, so it wouldn't make sense. Like, it wouldn't be the worst thing if you, you know, blipped out of existence. But then it's like, well, why would you cryo yourself? Um, but that was a good point. It's like Elon Musk should cryo himself because then it's like, all right, he gets to live in the world that he eventually creates, you know? Yes, yes. Uh, I like I it. Think it, I, think it I think it aligns, aligns incentives in a good way. Yeah, I think it's important. Um, and so I think it was the third one on that, your, uh, the valence, your pleasure pain um, cycle. I was curious, where are you on your hedonic treadmill and um, what's made the biggest impact to where you are in your adult life, not like things that were completely out of your control, like your childhood and all that stuff? Oh, sure. Well, where am I? Um, I would say that I'm definitely probably above average uh but not by much i mean i would say like maybe i'm like top 25 percent of happiness like okay like it's, i'm not you know particularly um you know anxiety prone or depression prone but you know i have i have bad days i have like pretty negative times in my life but you haven't um, completely blown it out through excessive mdma use or anything no 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 i no and especially something like mdma i'm like extremely careful with because of the the long-term implications and really i, mean, I think like that's that, that's, <laughs> that's so one much of the, different the, the, sorry uh, go ahead i was gonna say that's so much different of um how i heard you speak about it on Stuart alsop's show who i also had on my show um is you said if you take pro, uh, a lot amount over the course of years i'm like whoa he th does he think that you can take a lot more than you can take so i was curious what you think a safe amount is also. I, I would actually be pretty conservative when it comes to MDMA. Um, I would say, I mean, we can go into the specifics, like very roughly speaking, I wouldn't recommend more than once a year. And even once a year, I wouldn't recommend like do doses above like, let's say like 160 milligrams. Um, and I think like if you, if you do that, I think you're actually fine. Like I don't, I don't think there's like much of a chance of like long-term side effects i i do think that timelines like oh you can do it every three months or something like that i do think that's kind of based on motivated reasoning um and uh wishful thinking i do too um one interesting thing about it is um the theory that it's like oh you might get some brain damage um in the process but like if you have trauma and so as soon as you experience um you know something that may might trigger that trauma you go immediately to drinking that's just such a built-up like neural pathway and then what if the brain damage is breaking down that neural pathway like is some brain damage like i mean that's such a, a giant jump to make to say some brain damage might be good um but in, in in cases like mdma therapy when it is trying to break down old habits could it possibly be a good thing that it has long-term um, implications on your your health quote unquote like negatively 
That's a really great question. I mean, it's it's a very interesting idea to consider that the actual neurotoxicity is part of the therapeutic <laughs> effect. Um, and I haven't ran that by I, anyone, so I don't know. I'm just kind of spouting okay. off. Okay. <laughs> yeah. No, it, it's it, it's an interesting hypothesis. I I would find it unlikely. Um, in in our model, um, MDMA. I mean, I, I should definitely say MDMA can be profoundly therapeutic. Um, absolutely. Um, the mechanism of action of that ther- the therapeutic action, I think it's um, probably independent of its neurotoxic activity. Um, oh, I mean, we, 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 we have a model for, for basically what makes uh, MDMA therapeutic. Um, and it has to do with, I mean, I, actually, it's pretty strange, but like uh, one of the side effects of MDMA is this thing called nystagmus. You know, uh, the eyes kind of like wiggle uncontrollably, which is especially more common in higher doses, uh, above like 200 milligrams and so on. Um, but uh, even in small doses, you may experience it like a couple times. Um, but the thing is, like, if you introspect more deeply, you will realize that there's something like that happening, not only on your eyes, but throughout your nervous system. There's kind of this buildup of energy that then gets dissipated through this weird vibration and the vibration seems to be of the same frequency across your nervous system. So our interpretation here is that basically what trauma is, is when different parts of the nervous system are stopping to talk to each other. Uh, something happened that, let's say, one of those uh, subnetworks was experiencing tremendous amounts of dissonance. And other networks kind of blocked their communication to it as a protective measure. And... In the moment, it obviously made a lot of sense, and it probably saved a lot of the the a lot of the structure of other networks. But in the long term, that just causes these disconnect. And you know, a lot of people with uh, PTSD, they tend to say things such as, uh, "I can't feel my body," or like, "I feel sensations in my body, but I don't feel emotions." Like people have like weird disconnections with their body on on PTSD, and w- the way we are modeling how MDMA helps is that by creating kind of this shared vibration throughout your nervous system, um, it's basically enabling this new communication method between parts of the nervous system that weren't on speaking terms anymore. I like and that. it's kind of like, yeah, kickstarting that communication basically enables a long-term new communication pathway between them, which ultimately heals the system. And that's similar to, um, it might not be similar to, but when you uh, first try DMT, you get that very, almost deafeningly loud ringing sound. Is that a similar uh, attribute? But we actually got into it on Twitter. You think NN DMT, which is the only kind I've ever tried, doesn't do it, but 5-MeO does, which does 5-MeO have a similar ringing sound to it or what? Right. Well, they are different ringing sounds and they are like of different frequencies and they do, I think, have different therapeutic effects where... Um, it's definitely counterintuitive, but DMT, um, from a kind of a point of view of the information that it, uh, it, it provides, the information that it induces, I would say that it complexifies the state of consciousness. So rather than just like, you know, having a normal environment on DMT, you have kind of a, an environment plus, you know, kind of 300 other things as well. And they're all extremely highly specific things, right? Like it's not a 
general sense of a, an alien spaceship is like a very specific alien spaceship with a very specific you know message or very specific mood or very specific vibe they're like super specific states of consciousness and to that extent it, it kind of like only touches a part of a view and i think like it, it doesn't necessarily generalize it's not necessarily that therapeutic i could it definitely something that it absolutely does is reduce anxiety um and i think like the mechanism of action there has a lot to do with kind of um uh this phenomenon of annealing so basically you raise up the energy a whole lot and then that kind of melts a lot of the patterns that are pre-existing and as you cool down you kind of like become more smooth and and a lot of like the the inner tensions that you have uh dissipate and i think that's uh, that's good but 5meo dmt is even better and way better uh, i think in terms of like healing the nervous system because the overall particular kind of vibe of 5meo dmt is one that dissolves boundaries inside you as opposed to create boundaries and i would say that dmt actually creates more boundaries so do you think uh, it's, it's kind of almost anti-healing do you think it because um, i've actually it, kind of developed this thing where it's uh, consciousness is almost like the antithesis of happiness like your happiest moments when you're the most like pain-free and everything like you're almost your consciousness is at its lowest state where you almost forget you're here you know yeah well but i could be talking on my ass with that no, no, no. I mean, um, these are correlated things um, in that a lot of what drives our attention is basically imperfections, kind of uh, th- things that are like, yeah, slightly off. And for sure, to a large extent, uh, when you feel really good, oftentimes it's because of loss of awareness of, of, of things like that. But there are very high energy states of consciousness that are very high valence as well. And they could be described as hyper aware, but also hyper positive, like very high valence, very high happiness. And uh, I mean, a good 5-MeO DMT state is like that. It's like very, very, very high energy, but also very, very high level of harmony and consonance. Um, yeah, so it's a... It's correlated, but it's not. They're not the same thing. And yeah, the the thing with um, DMT versus five MeO. I mean, there's two analogies also I could make. One is the difference between um, perfectly repeating crystals versus quasi crystals. So quasi crystal, you know, very simple shapes, but that they create this pattern that just never repeats. Um, and it seems like it contains infinite information because no matter where you go, it continues to be a different pattern. Um, well, with NNDMT, I would say that it almost creates quasi-crystals in your experience. So it, it does create like these little crystals and these like resonances, but those like don't uh, basically desolate the entirety of your experience. They usually are restricted to a portion of it. Um, and they kind of build on top of each other. And you get like these very complex shapes that are like structured um, with the building blocks being kind of these crystals of different resonances and different frequencies. Interesting. Um, so do you think uh, do you think complexifying your life is not a good thing or is a good thing? It, it depends. I mean, like the classic failure mode of doing a lot of DMT is that you tend to do what I would call overfeeding, which is that. You have like such a high model complexity that you can explain anything with it. And 
I mean, in, in terms of something like machine learning or, or statistics, it would be something similar as uh, trying to predict uh, in, a, in, a, in a scatter plot, you know, trying to fit a polynomial of a degree equal to the number of points in, in the scatter plot, which you can, you can always do, right? Like, it doesn't matter where the points are, you can always find a polynom- very high dimensional polynomial that goes exactly through all of them. Um, and in that sense, like, it's going to make your predictions a lot worse because they don't generalize. And of course, the sort of things that you hear are things such as, like, oh my gosh, there's a government conspiracy and it has to do with Russia and it has to do with the archons and the guardian angels and this very complicated story to explain things that could actually be explained in a much more simple way. So, whereas 5-MeO-DMT does the complete opposite, I would say it drastically simplifies your models and... The failure mode there is that you end up saying things such as um, the only thing that matters is that we all realize that we are God, like that we're all one, yeah. like that th- and there's just nothing else. That's like the one truth that matters and that's love. it. <laughs> yeah, and it's all love. And like there's just zero attention to detail or like zero attention to complexity or the realities of the world. And and of course, both of these extremes, I would say, are failure modes. Um, so... I think it's kind of more like a matter of like, hey, if you're a person who tends to overthink everything, probably 5-MeO DMT would be good. Is there and a different, is there a different um, thing that you can take instead of 5-MeO DMT that is also simplifying? I would say MDMA. MDMA oh, would cool. be similar, similar general direction of effect. It, it makes people kind of uh, simplify their models. And oftentimes that's, that's good. I mean, like... We, if you live with this very complex model that is not serving you and is causing anxiety, having a, something that hammers down simplicity in your models can be very, very good. I like it. And so if, um, if MDMA use is, is separate from its neurotoxic effects, is there a different way of, um, of getting it? Because I, I heard you speak about something that was really interesting is that's the, the trying to break down um, tolerance by using small amounts of ibogaine to break down uh, opioid addictions just on yeah. uh, very, very often uses. Is there a similar thing where you can take, maybe not uh, MDMA, but like, I actually tried Kana recently, a uh, South African plant. Have you heard of it? It's like I've a, heard of it. It's yeah. like an SRI. Oh. So I, I tried it, and it didn't do anything for me. Um, <laughs> okay. But most people say yeah. it's a lot like an S, uh, like an MDMA trip or like the similar level um, of how, how amped you get it. Um, and I got it off lift mode for anyone who wants really high-quality supplements. Lift modes are great. Um, not, not sponsored by them, but they have phenomenal Fenibit and stuff. Um, but... Is there a way that you can get the simplification of MDMA? I mean, if you can only take it once a year, you know. Well, all. so we're, we're working on it. Um, I mean, there's really kind of two paths here. One of them, I, I do talk about it because I think it's very important to investigate, but it's not something that we are actively investigating at Qualia. I mean, we are not a pharmaceutical company and we are not going to be running clinical trials anytime soon. Um but for sure, anti-tolerance drugs are, I think, like an extremely promising area of research, especially when you consider that, um, you know, people who have chronic pain or anxiety disorders and uh, mood disorders, uh, some research ser- shows that basically a part of it can be explained in terms of differences in opioid receptors. And... If you think about it, that's kind of the, the ultimate injustice, you know, that some people genetically have fewer opioid receptors than others. And 
of course, from the point of view of current medicine, if somebody is saying like, hey, I'm in a lot of pain, I need a, I would like some painkiller. But then they look at, you know, the disease that you have and they say like, well, yeah, this is not usually very painful. They may be missing out on the fact that perhaps you have different opioid receptors. And for you, this may be much more painful than it is for others. Um, and then there's like the, the further complication that uh, even for people who are prescribed heavy painkillers, uh, for a big percentage of them, they stop working after several years, uh, which is a, a massive tragedy, especially when you consider very high intensity uh, levels of chronic pain, which are unfor- unfortunately very common. Um, so anti-tolerance drugs could, in a sense, treat all of that. Uh, and I mean, ibogaine would be perhaps the most well-known anti-tolerance drug. It has a lot of problems, uh, including like it may have a heart, uh, oh, yeah. maybe it's slightly cardiotoxic. Well, so in your show with Stuart, you actually kind of um, talk, tried to talk him out of um, taking one large dose because of the, the shamanism of it all, thinking that everyone has to go through a really rough experience. Yeah. And just recently he went and did it um, in Colombia. <laughs> he went and did a full-blown trip and I'm like, I, I wouldn't, um, mostly because of the cardiotoxic, but also it's like 24 to 36 hours potentially of brutally yeah. awful experience um i'm actually very against the shamanism at all um as someone who has experimented a lot with nndmt all you hear about is people like oh you have to take in the jungle it's their sacred substance and it's like i don't think that at all i've had wonderfully profound experiences i've received quote-unquote downloads where you're like oh something clicks and makes head makes sense you know and i'm like why should that be almost covered it is like a materialism of spirituality that was a good uh, good phrasing that you used for it oh huh. nice yes i mean i think yeah it's a, it's quite 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 an unfortunate uh, meme, I would say that uh, yeah you have to do it in these traditional ways, whereas like hey okay like ma- I'm sure like cultural evolution made it so that those traditional ways were fitting for something and fitting maybe for that society, but we have things that are way better now in terms of like methods and procedures and and ways of optimizing the experience. Um, it's uh, kind of insane to to expect that. The best way to take a drug is to take it in the way a random, you know, tribe was taking it for for hundreds of years, yeah. <laughs> which is extremely unlikely. And, <laughs> and expect that it has some sort of correlation to your life back home. Like you come back home, and you're like, oh, I learned how to live better in a jungle. Not here, though. Um, exactly. Do you have exactly. any experience with opioids or any of those sorts of things? If, no, and if that's uh, too personal, you know, you obviously don't have to answer anything. No, I mean, I've. I've tried like many, many nootropics and supplements, and I guess uh, uh, Kratom tried it. But I mean, it's definitely all of that is uh, pretty, pretty edgy for me when it comes to like long term, long term, uh, long term issues potentially. And uh, I, I do think that in terms of like treating people with chronic pain or people with serious depression. I do think, uh, basically, yes, yeah, something like investigating the combination of an anti-tolerance drug together with a partial mu opioid agonist, I think that would be probably top of the line when it comes to the most promising therapies. But uh, I generally wouldn't advocate that a random healthy person should be uh, messing up with that. <laughs> That's so interesting because, um, oh, I can't even remember his uh, name. is like Dr. Carl... Heart or someone went on Joe Rogan a couple times. He's like, opioids are one of the only substances that don't really, um, they're not necessarily detrimental to your liver, kidneys, stomach, respiratory, heart, anything. 
Um, except yeah. it's it just the longer you take them, it tends to make you more painful. Like, like everything just more painful when you eventually come off. And I think a large yep. reason that is because you don't stretch because you don't have pain. You don't feel like you need to stretch. Like you put off ah. things that would eventually. Because I, I, I personally, I'm edgy. I've been using Kratom for like three years now. Um, super mm-hmm. small. I mean, the most minute amount you could imagine. Um, but I really enjoy it, I personally, and I don't necessarily have any chronic pain or anxiety or stress coming into it. It's just very, very, very euphoric to me to the point where I was prescribed a traditional opiate. I was given 10 double strength Vicodin for a uh, strep throat one time and I tried two of them or I took two of them like just to get rid of the sore throat and the next day I stalled eight. I'm like, well, let me see what it feels like. And I tried three and I was like, it did nothing for me. It was purely numbing rather than euphoric. So I'm like, oh, I don't care about this in the slightest. But Kratom is so euphoric for me that I just, I love it for the fact that I think it starts more positive thought loops. Like um, when you get in a place with your business with quality or something where you're like, oh, this feels hopeless. Um, I don't know what, maybe you go for a run. That's probably the better solution. But if you take a little bit of Kratom, you're like, okay, no, I have faith. This will work out. Um, And I found that it tends to help just keep things positive, you know, until things eventually work out. But the more the more successful people I talk to say that never goes away. So I'm like, interesting. Huh, interesting. Well, that's uh, that's good uh, anecdotal data. Um, <laughs> I no, and, and I think yeah. I mean, I I definitely agree that uh, mo- not every opioid, but like some opioids can definitely be uh taken sustainably in the long term without like yeah organ damage and, and there's like these classic fascinating studies of for example if you give um rodents or yeah like rats um unlimited access to a you know oral cocaine you know they can drink a cocaine solution or water and you let them choose or b uh drink morphine water or or saline and um you just like let them do it for as long as they want and however frequently they want and so on. Those who get the, the cocaine water, they die within two weeks. <laughs> and those who get the morphine water, they just live normal lives until, I mean, they're going to be maybe like more sedated, but like on the whole, like they don't have lower life expectancies. Oh, so, interesting. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I, I mean, like I think the, the main problem, of course, it's, uh, um, yeah, I mean, like, such a huge percentage of people who, who die o- opioid overdoses um, is because they, they're, for example, combining it with alcohol <laughs> or something like that. And, uh, yeah, definitely putting the wild can be pretty dangerous. But that's why I think, like, partial mu opioid agonists are game-changing because it's so hard to die of, of an overdose. From of Kratom. Something like, yeah, yeah Kratom. Because or, it doesn't have the respiratory uh, depression aspect that, like, exactly, in combination exactly. with alcohol is obviously so so brutally awful but um i think one of the other big things is just being on any substance for a sustained basis such as opiates is not good but another one is ssris and you had a great analogy of a white noise machine um but i'm curious overall because one of my good friends actually or a friend of mine and a guest on the show recently just started getting on ssris what's your take on um would you ever get it and what what situation would you have to be in in life to get on ssris yeah, yeah, it's a it's a really good question. I do think there is a time and place for an, an SSRI, um, especially for people who have a lot of anxiety and who have, let's say, like a lot of like social anxiety, um, and also for whom, let's say, like the prospect of like impaired sexual function is not that big of a deal. Um, there's like um, one example might be like angst-ridden, you know, teenage girl, like, might be a, a, a person for whom, like, a, like a, 
a temporary course of SSRIs could be pretty beneficial. Um, but uh, yeah, in, in the general case, it's just going to cut off the extremes, both positive and negative. And the thing is that a lot of like positive extremes is not just a nice to have, but positive extremes are also very therapeutic. I mean, like the, there is a huge benefit to like laughing, you know, a belly laugh. There's like actually <laughs> something that is happening at the nervous system related to the MDMA effect, actually what we call in qualia um, integration, you're increasing uh, neural integration. And that doesn't really happen if you're taking an SSRI. Basically, you can go months and months without experiencing kind of like a high energy spike of happiness. And there's like so much useful intellectual and emotional processing that happens on those spikes that you can reasonably say that if you take an SSRI, you kind of become a, a different person that is much more um, anhedonic, like a lot less kind of like experiences of pleasure and pain. Um, again, if you're suffering a lot and there's nothing else available and the suffering is especially of the anxiety type as opposed to melancholia, uh, an SSRI can, can be good. But uh, So what's the difference? Yeah. What, what's melancholia? What, what, how would you describe that as? Yeah, so... It, I mean, maybe the best way to describe it is kind of um, the complete absence of desire coupled with a sense of hopelessness or, or doom. Interesting. And so then what would you take for that? <laughs> right. If, if I you mean, take that, SSRIs for anxiety. Exactly. That is, that is the sort of case that I think in the long term, um, we we should aim to do something anti-tolerance drugs together with a partial mu opioid agonist. Oh, cool. But in the in the absence of that, for melancholia, the the next best thing would be, um, in terms of like pharmaceuticals, it would be something like a, a long like long-term stimulants, like for example, selegilin, which is a uh, MAOI, uh, and uh, I think like MAOI B. So like basically, it prevents the the, the breakdown of uh, basically the more stimulant neurotransmitters like dopamine and norepinephrine. Um, Could I take like something that, like Syrian Rue for that too then? Like a non-pharmaceutical uh, version? I don't or think caffeine? so. Mostly, mostly because of the... I mean, sure. I mean, maybe... maybe uh, I ju- I'm just thinking like how to do it properly. But yeah, like it may be possible. The, the main limiting uh, factor there is kind of the longevity of it. That selegiline is something you can take like one you know, one pill a day and it slowly builds up and like after a week, like it actually reaches like steady state. Okay, cool. Um, um, but that, I mean, that type of treatment actually reduces melancholia and like actually makes you, makes you like more, more engaged and like it, it seems to really help people with, uh, with melancholia and... That's cool. The other thing... And what was yeah, the name of that yeah. one more time just for people who, who have that? Selegilin. Selegilin. All right, I'm sure people will figure that out. Um, and so you're opposed to other things such as Adderall? Or uh, Adderall, the, the problem is the calm downs. So the, the main problem of taking Adderall for melancholic depression is that the calm down and then kind of the withdrawal period will be like your pre-existing depression, but potentially, like, you know, potentially 10, t- 10 times worse. So yeah. um, if we discover anti-tolerance drugs for amphetamines, then yeah, that might be a that might be a good thing. Yeah, <laughs> then people will just be awake for three days on end. Um, do you experience either one of the mel- melancholia or anxiety? And if so, like which one do you do you gravitate more toward? Uh, 
That's a great question. I probably gravitate a little bit more to anxiety. Uh, I I must confess I'm a bit of a, a hypochondriac, but I think I think I'm just kind of like very risk averse and like, um, and my pain thresholds are, uh, for some things are like fairly low. Not for others, but like for some things. So like, I've often gone to you know um, emergency care for things that like really didn't require it and oh, wow. and so on. So, and I think like anxiety of that type is mm-hmm. like. It's not yeah. super common, but I, I do experience no. it probably a have bit ever, more than. Have any you ever others. tried Fenibit or uh, like a GABA thing for that? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I have, I have tried Fenibit. Um, yeah, it's uh, it's pretty good. I, I I prefer it in very small doses, like, or not very, but like small doses, like three hundred milligrams yeah. or something like that. I've never taken more than five hundred, really, because then it just gets yeah. too much, almost like you're drunk for like hours on end. Exactly. Yeah, and uh, I don't. I don't see the point in that. But yeah, no. I mean, for I don't know, attending a a daily you know, a day party or something. So like, rather than drinking, taking a little bit of Fennybud at the very beginning, it's yeah, it's it's a nice thing. It's beautiful. Um, I like it, man. Um, so substances aside, just the just consciousness as a whole. Um, where do you fit on like? Uh, do you eat meat? This is going to be a kind of roundabout question. Do you eat meat? No, I don't. You don't? Okay, I was going to ask. I'm like, do you think um, animals are conscious? Because I've met a lot of people who think, oh, yeah, like cows and pigs and chickens are conscious. And then I'm like, but you eat like factory farmed meat? They're like, yeah, I do. I'm like, <laughs> how, how, can you, how can you hold those two, two things in your brain? Um, <laughs> but I guess you figure out a way of doing it, I, assuming you believe they're conscious. Oh, yeah, I believe they're conscious. I, I would actually go a step further and say that I do think that if an alien could actually sense qualia in this world... They would probably not call our world a uh, human world. They would probably call it the cow, pig, um, cow, pig, chicken world. Mostly and, because wow, th- those are like the biggest populations on Earth when it comes to like sentient beings. And I mean, think about it. Right now, there are about like sixty billion pigs alive. But how and, many trillions of ants? Like, how far down would you go with that? You know, if it's a numbers that, game. Yeah. It, it, that's true. That's true. I guess like a, a super rough estimate would be counting the aggregate number of neurons in each, in each of these. But um, so I do t- think like suffering. You multiply like brain size or like uh, frontal cortex brain volume times amount of creatures with it or something or what? <laughs> Not necessarily. But yeah, something something of that vein. Yeah. Uh, I actually also have a post about um, it's called Against Fetishizing Cortical Neurons because. Number of cortical neurons certainly correlates with um, kind of uh, classic notions of intelligence uh, for humans and, and animals and non-human animals. But when it comes to like ethical worth or like ethical relevance, I think like that's actually kind of independent. That um, having a lot of cortical neurons is good in terms of your instrumental value, you know, how much you can benefit the world. But it, I don't think it matters very much in terms of your capacity to suffer and your capacity to experience bliss. Really? What about that chicken? Um, they had its head cut off except for the brainstem um, and just the, the hindbrain enough to keep it surviving. I think it survived for like nine or 18 months or something. Just people fed it um, with a little uh, pipette thing. It would just like feed it like cornmeal or something. <laughs> um, I mean, yes. did that experience pain even though it literally just had enough to walk around? It probably did just not a he probably didn't have like a world simulation where which is like where the vast majority of the the suffering uh might be happening so 
uh, I mean, like something like pain ganglia at, in the, your peripheral nervous system, I do suspect that they experience micro experiences. I just don't think they become what we call phenomenally bound to what's actually going on in, in your brain. So I do think like that, morally speaking, what's going on in the brain is, you know, extremely, extremely important relative to what's going on in the peripheral nervous system. Um, and it has to do with, with binding. Basically, are these neurons contributing, actively contributing to a unified moment of experience? And, and yeah, I mean, I, I think like it's, it's very likely that um, many, I think it's likely that many small animals, uh, let's say an ant, they may have like very tiny world simulations uh, kind of in the center of their nervous system, but the majority of their ner nervous system is uh, what we might call micro experiential or like experience dust. You know, it's not really an an actual aggregated moment of experience. It's just a tiny speck. And I'm, I don't think it matters that much uh, what happens to tiny specks of experience relative to big bulky experiences like what we are. <laughs> yeah, interesting. Um, just for just um, to cut that off the little bit. So it was called Mike the Headless Chicken. He was for 18 months alive with no wow. head, which is not craziness. Um, but so, oh, it, 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 there's two different ways I want to go. One is like, but what about the whole accumulation of all those specs, which is an ant colony? Like, is, is that equal to one person? Like, because that's almost like all the different tendrils of one central nervous system, which is like, however, they're sending them out to go get food and stuff. Um, Absolutely. But the other so, way I wanted to go with it yeah. is what about, what about times of extreme disassociation? Zoom, Zoom's kind of cutting us off here a little bit. Um, did you hear the second direction I said? Yes. Okay, yeah, times of extreme uh, disassociation with things like uh, ketamine, when you're no longer even necessarily, or maybe even 5-MeO-DMT, you're no longer necessarily associated with um, with you, your body, and who you are. Like, yeah, that has nothing to do with your, your nervous system whatsoever. Yeah, does it? I don't know, man. <laughs> well, I'll address the first, the second one first, and then I'll go to the first one. So the second one, no, I mean, I think, I think 5-MeO-DMT actually makes you hyper-conscious. It actually increases the amount of consciousness. It's just that it also reduces the information content of your experience. So it's very classical that people say they experience a whiteout. You know, it's, if you get the dose high enough, you just don't remember what happened in the peak. Um, and you, my model of that is that actually your nervous system was creating a whole lot of qualia. It's just that it was extremely simple in its information content. And you can almost think of it as like becoming an elemental. You know, these, you know, elementals in, you know, in folklore or in, you know, mythology, like kind of a, a huge thing that is just, you know, a tsunami could be an elemental or, like a, you know, a huge fire, an elemental in the sense of like, there's big forces of nature as opposed to like a complex organism like us. You know, uh, I would say a 5-MeO DMT experience is kind of an elemental experience in that it's like, okay, this super simple lattice or super simple repeating structure. Um, but I would say it's morally extremely relevant because it's a, a massive amount of unified consciousness. Um, in, in ketamine, I would also say it depends on the, the dose. There, there are doses where I would say you're actually very, very conscious, even though the content of the experience is very dissociated. Uh, I would say you can still have a really unpleasant 
ketamine experience, even if you take like, you know, 70 or 80 milligrams, what most people would associate with going with kind of a a K-hole. Exactly. If if you bump it up to like 500 milligrams, then yes, I think (laughs) think you would be unconscious (laughs) at that point. But but, uh, yeah, sub-anesthetic doses, I would say like, yeah, they don't modify the amount of consciousness they just change the structure and so you're still receiving structure. qualia and do you just want to ex- explain qualia forever it's like a any sort of input experience and stuff well is my understanding. actually qual- the crazy thing is qualia is kind of independent of inputs i mean it's qualia is related to inputs in normal everyday states of mind but you just need to look at for example dreaming like dreaming you're actively generating a world simulation that you're inhabiting and interacting with without it corresponding to any external sensor input. So qualia refers to the raw matter of factness of experience, the, the way experience presents itself. And uh, there's usually kind of the confusion because people might say something like, like, well, if you look at a, 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 if you look at a towel and the towel is blue, uh, really what you're looking at is kind of the, the blueness of the towel. But I, I would say, actually, you're not even looking at a towel directly. What's happening is your brain is creating a world simulation that includes the feeling of you staring at a, at a towel, but it's all in your head. It's all in your head. Uh, you can't perceive the world directly. Uh, that's kind of a, an inference that we make based on the structure of our experience. Do you think um, this is a quasi-crystal way of building your world or it's too complex? <laughs> you know, <laughs> where you're like... It, it is, it is definitely a, an overhead to think to think in this way. Yeah, I mean that's almost like um, vipassana meditation, where instead of you know seeing seeing uh, whatever the room around you, you just disassociate. Similar to how you, you wanted to use valence instead of pleasure pain, you didn't want the associations that came with a room that you're in or the sunshine and stuff like that. Is this along yeah. that sort of thing, or like what brought you to this? No, it's 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 similar to that in that like the thing is like you like color the experience of color the qualia of color is independent of light it has nothing to do with light wow really because think about it you have people with synesthesia right like they can hear uh, a sound and they experience a color as an effect of the sound you could even have a person with synesthesia that is blind but can blind in the sense of their eyes are malfunctioning but if their visual cortex is still still alive um, there could be some crosstalk between, let's say, their auditory and their visual cortex so that they hear sounds, but they experience colors, meaning that the mapping between the qualia of experience and sensory input is a programmable variable. It's basically something that, hey, evolution arrived at the particular mapping that we have, but there's no logically necessary uh, reason why it has to be that way. So... In that sense, you can even kind of dissociate the study of uh, how s- the sense organs function from the study of the structure of qualia, because you can study qualia when you're dreaming, for example. Interesting. And do you do, or so? What? What? what do you do? You do research at qualia, like with um, like EEGs or electrodes or anything, or like what? So what do you actually do? I'm interested now. Right. I was like, holy cow. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> we do we do a number of things uh the three i would say like the three big buckets are i mean one is testing the symmetry theory of valence which is our our overall kind of framework for what we think 
is pleasure and pain. And you test that through like like actual body biometrics or just um, yes. Okay, cool. So EEG, um, we also I mean we have like some precise empirically testable predictions for fMRI, and uh, we are working to to test them. Um, but in the absence of that. Uh, EEG, I mean, we, we're collecting data on EEG. Specifically, we're collecting data of people who can achieve the Janus in uh, meditation, which are these very high valence, very high energy states of consciousness. And um, and we're basically applying our models to, to model the EEG patterns. And I mean, just to give you a, a, a taste of it, the sort of thing that we are seeing is massive increases in gamma coherence uh, when you're in a, in a Jana which agrees with our theory so far, because gamma coherence is, in a sense, a signature that your whole brain is in tune and that is generating a relatively simple pattern shared across the entire brain. And so that's and that hum- that goes sense, back to the humming, like your whole body's yes. humming in a genus? Or what would you call it? Yes. Yeah. Uh, yes, and it's a, it also goes back to why anybody would care about, like, a buzz, right? Like when you have a drink or something and you experience a buzz, uh, a lot of people say like, oh, like that's stupid. Like why would, it, why would you, you know, sacrifice going to a good party in order to have a buzz or something like that? But no, actually in our theory, the buzz itself, the, the, the structure of the buzz is what determines whether you're experiencing pleasure or pain. Wow. So <laughs> the, you shouldn't un, you shouldn't underestimate the power of a buzz. <laughs> Interesting. And so do they get there through like TM meditation? Or um, have you ever laid in bed and you have that almost tinnitus ringing in your ear and you kind of focus on it as hard as you can? And you can get it almost as loud as DMT gets. Um, for me, when I take DMT, I no longer get a ringing. But those first dozen times, it was almost oh. definitely loud. Um, Interesting. But I don't have it whatsoever anymore um but when i'm laying in bed i can almost focus on it and it can get just as loud is that a similar butt like is that the buzz that that people get because i've never had a buzz from alcohol like beyond like the feeling goofy like i've never i've never felt the similar uh dmt or sleeping tinnitus buzz that is it's it would be it's it's a different type okay um uh definitely alcohol would be much more mild than something like dmt but uh yeah, I mean, and, and the, the thing is, like, the, the DMT buzz, and, I mean, this connects also to why I think 5-MeO is better for therapy, is the, the DMT buzz is pretty... Um, uh, do, yeah, okay, yeah, the DMT buzz is, like, pretty harsh. It's overwhelming. Um, yeah, it's overwhelming, but also is, like... Probably the, the correct term is, like, sharp. It's, like, it's it has a cutting quality, and you can... It, it doesn't harmonize your nervous system it's almost kind of like it overpowers it right it's kind of like like um like a drill and then your whole nervous system has to tune into that drill whereas 5-MeO DMT is completely different almost 5-MeO DMT is allowing your entire nervous system to buzz at its own natural frequency so it feels kind of like endogenous it feels like it's something you are producing as opposed to something you're tuning into. That's such an interesting way of doing it. And then again, I have two different ways I want to go on this. One is, um, is there a way of getting a similar, uh, where you get your body's natural buzz with MDMA? Like, would you take MDMA and meditate or something? Um, But then the second route that I want to go in, um, 
oh snap i forgot uh, go, go to that first route i'm gonna think of the second one is <laughs> is the one i wanted to know more but i said the other one first my bad <laughs> yes well actually this connects also to the another thing we do at qualia research so i mentioned testing the symmetry theory valence then the other the second one is um basically developing this neuro technology that allows us to basically induce very high valence states of consciousness at will and without any substance. Oh wow! And and that's uh, that's basically what I think eventually might perhaps not entirely substitute psychedelic therapy, but it might be at the very least complemented through the use of but electro stimulation in the uh, to the brain. Actually, it's simpler than that. Well, we we will incorporate that, but right now we are basically using sound um stroboscopic stimulation oh i've seen that um i've actually seen the person who sells it where it's like the lights uh flash over yes. your eyes that's great those work that yeah well it, it just definitely produces super in- interesting states of consciousness and then the third thing we also do is uh, body vibration so there is this uh, device called a sub pack in case you've heard of it um it's kind of like a backpack that you hook it up to your phone or to a to an audio jack and it vibrates at basically it renders the part of the song that is between 10 and 100 hertz and um that's kind of the base of the song right and and it feels like you're like in a concert perhaps like pretty close to like a massive speaker or something like that uh and you feel the the body vibrations and you feel kind of the people around you like jumping in and out and up and down and like you it really intensifies and and uh, enhances the enjoyment of music for the most part and if you're combining yet together with uh, stroboscopic stimulation those three channels at once you can get to like i mean honestly states that like almost kind of resemble dmt wow how much um, are those sub packs that's got that's got me intrigued because the lights yeah. are like thousands of dollars those are like four grand yes. for lights Yes, absolutely. So Subax is not that bad. It's like $350. It's worth it, in your opinion? Yeah. Cool. I'll get one. I mean, if, you, if you're if you into consciousness and psychedelics and exploring, uh, it's yeah. definitely definitely something that will make any psychedelic trip, you know, so much more worthwhile. Because So you just put on um, in headphones and then sync up your, your phone, like the music to the subpack and your headphones, so you're listening and feeling it? Exactly. Wow. And with, with our system, you're also experiencing lights. And it's not only, I mean, there's like the stroboscopic lights that are, you know, just like, let's say 10 hertz or, or 15 hertz or whatever they, they choose, like one of those like professional ones they sell. But we're doing actually something much more sophisticated, which is we have an algorithm that renders the music in the form of lights. Oh, so wow. y- you probably know, like a lot of like, Really cool electronic bands, for example, have like very heavy light shows when they perform live. And, you know, that's usually an artist who is kind of listening to the music and controlling the lights um, or they create the program in advance, right? Like like when the lights are going to turn on in synchrony with the music. Um, we have something like that where basically we developed an algorithm that takes as an input the song and the output is the sequence of stroboscopic stimulations so that it uh, basically drives up um, the amount of... Uh, oh, no, you well, cut the, there the, for a second. Uh, I think I might have lost you. Uh, Could you hear me? Yeah, yeah okay, I can beautiful. hear you now. I got you now. 
Ah, that's one of the reasons. I, I'm, I'm actually going to go down to San Francisco um, and Santa Cruz region at some point. Are you? Do you live right around there? Uh, yeah. Yeah, I live in San Francisco. Beautiful, because so. I'm going to do a show with um, Stuart while I'm down there. And I've actually been talking to Naval's brother, Kamal Ravikant. Um, and I'm hoping to do a show nice. with him, too, when I'm in the area. So it'd be great to meet up and actually do an in-person show sometime to have less of this uh, technological interference between it. <laughs> um, so... Do you know of any, like, are there companies where people can try those, um, the lights, aside from buying your own? Yeah, th there are, there are, uh, there's a couple places, even in, in, uh, the Bay Area where you can get a session. Oh, cool. And they're usually pretty expensive, and I, I would say they're worth it to try it out, for sure. Yeah. Um, so, on your own, though, have, do you, do you just set up your sub pack and the lights and just go for it for a couple hours, or what? Well... The best time for the session is usually half an hour. I think like after that, it's there is kind of diminishing returns. But more than fifteen minutes, um, less than half an hour is kind of the ideal, um, and it's pretty effective. And yeah, I mean like we the stroboscopic stimulation. The main factor there is that the lights have to be pretty bright to actually cause the desirable effects and. So you actually need to buy and build the hardware yourself. Um, and that's, I mean, that's something that, you know, of course, we are like a, a small institute. We have some people with expertise in, you know, electrical engineering. We can do that. But that's almost certainly kind of outside of the means of most people, unfortunately. Um, but, uh, yeah, we have kind of a, the full setup. Um, we ma made it ourselves. And uh, we're looking to basically scale up and actually turn it into a, a startup because it, it will probably be of like tremendous value for for treating uh trauma first of all yeah that's incredible man i am seriously looking forward to every single thing you're doing um we're just at about an hour um i'm looking forward to following this up when i um, i'll be down there this summer so we'll potentially link up then and record an yeah, in-person show yeah. definitely um, keep me up to date yeah <laughs> lots of love um and where can people find you twitter and website or uh yeah i mean um Definitely the first thing would be qualiacomputing.com. And after that, uh, yeah, sure, add me on Twitter, Facebook. And uh, uh, if you're, uh, yeah, I guess, like, very very serious about the possibility of collaborating or perhaps, like, joining us uh, for an inter virtual intern cycle now that <laughs> there is the, the corona situation, um, we've actually shifted to, like, making a, our intern cycle this summer is going to be virtual rather than in person. Um, so like if uh, you're interested in any of that or doing volunteer work yeah like uh, send, send us an email and uh, we'll be in touch beautiful I'll put those links in the description uh, lots of love and take care man thank you very much for your time thank you thank you so much likewise <laughs> alright that was awesome man you are an absolute joy to speak with <laughs> thank you thank you likewise it's uh, super pleasant